Jay Rosen is moving this week, so I am joined by my very special guest host, Christy Grant Hart. What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Some of the stories we're taking a look at this week on This Week in FCPA include Design Thinking Returns to Compliance, an ex-Goldman Sachs banker settles an FCPA matter, a series of FBI short videos on red flags around cybersecurity, why Tricky Dicky still lives in FCPA enforcement, Using insurance captives to provide FCPA D&O coverage, an interesting approach. Do we need to ban high-value currency for AML purposes? What about compliance opportunities in and after COVID? How you can build an effective AML action plan? The SEC settles a pre-taliation case with Guggenheim Partners. And will laws requiring board diversity require, or survive rather, court scrutiny? We take a look at key podcasts over the past week on the Compliance Podcast Network and events all on This Week in FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself for This Week in FCPA, episode 258 for the week ending June 25, 2021, the Design Thinking in Compliance Edition. Jay and I are back to take a look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, which caught our collective eyes uh, this week. So, Jay, uh, should we jump right into it? Let's go for it, man. So, Jay, we begin with uh, the lead title and lead story for this week, and that's design thinking. Uh, Our colleague, Karsten Tams, who's been in the compliance field for uh, probably about as long as we have, He's one of the most interesting thinkers around. He comes to us, or rather comes to compliance from a little bit different perspective. And one of the things that I've always been interested in Carson's Carsten's thoughts on our design thinking. He and I began a dialogue about five years ago on the use of design thinking in compliance. And he's uh, put together a five-part series. He's Posting each week on LinkedIn, and part one is up, and it's entitled Design Thinking Meets Ethics and Compliance. And he explains why design thinking is uniquely suited to a compliance solution, and I heartily agree with with him. Basically, uh, it's four different points that an engaging program needs. It uh, should serve its users' needs, and design thinking is designed to exactly do that. Two, if you build it with them, they will be more engaged. Uh, Three, uh, you begin with a design sprint, and that's part of design thinking's well-structured process uh, to utilize, to come up with and develop new ideas, and then uh, tailoring a design thinking project that fits. And the key really to all of this, Jay, is that design thinking 
evolved as a process to involve customers in the design process. And the theory being, if you have customers design it and their input into what they want in the marketplace, they'll buy it. Well, that same process, I believe, transfers and translates exactly into the compliance profession and the compliance program, which is if you um, involve your employees in it, not only will it be a better program, but they'll be more engaged with you and with it. So uh, check out uh, part one in his five-part series. I'm going to be writing more about design thinking next month, inspired by Carson's uh, posts, and we hope to have a pretty good dialogue on this. Jay, what do you have for us? Uh, next up, we've got something from our good friend at the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal, Dylan Tokar. And we're going to take a look at an ex-Goldman Sachs banker who settles an FCPA matter. A former Goldman Sachs Group banker has settled the claim by U.S. regulators that he arranged for millions of dollars in bribes to be paid to government officials in Ghana to help a client win a power plant contract. Asante Burko, a former executive at Goldman's London subsidiary, will pay about $329,000 to resolve U.S. SEC case without admitting or denying the regulator's allegations. The penalty represents what regulators say are the net profits he gained as a result of the alleged bribery scheme plus interest. The SEC and Goldman Sachs didn't immediately return requests for comment. Mr. Burko, who was charged by the SEC in April of last year in a civil lawsuit with facilitating as much as $4.5 million in bribes to help a Turkish energy company win a contract to build power plants in Ghana. He personally paid at least 66000 to members of the Ghanaian parliament, according to the SEC's lawsuit, which accused him of violating the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. A person with knowledge of the case said the company involved was a Turkish energy company called AXA, A-K-S-A Energy, and the SEC said the Istanbul-based company funneled money to an intermediary, which paid the bribes. Mr. Burko, a U.S. citizen who left Goldman Sachs in 2016, tried to hide the scheme from Goldman's compliance officers, according to the lawsuit. The bank, which wasn't named in court's filings, ended its involvement with the project after the Turkish company refused to explain the intermediary firm's role. A Goldman Sachs spokesman said the bank fully cooperated with the SEC investigation, adding that the commission at the time noted the bank's compliance personnel took appropriate steps. The penalty agreed upon by the SEC and Mr. Burko on Wednesday represents a significant step back from what the regulators said should, be a, should have been imposed at the time its civil lawsuit was filed. In a complaint filed in 2020, the SEC had said the former Goldman banker should pay a civil penalty along with disgorgement of gains from the alleged scheme. The settlement reached on Wednesday, Wednesday did not include a civil penalty. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next up, we have a, a little bit different and yet a little bit interesting series that I wanted to highlight. And this came to my attention from our good friend, Scott Moritz. Scott, of course, has the Fraud Each Strategy podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network, and he is a partner at uh, FTI. And he had a post on LinkedIn which was one part of a six-part series by the FBI, Scott's a retired FBI agent, on um, red flags in cyber. And these are short. Uh, we've linked to all six. Uh, 
YouTube videos on things you need to to watch out for. They're aimed at individuals and home uh, families and homeowners, but I looked at all of them. I think they're all less than two minutes each, and I thought they were really applicable for a business as well. So we've linked to all six. Part one is uh, red flags around requests for payments. Uh, part two, payments above listed amounts. Part three, moving request to move a new platform to communicate. I thought that was an interesting one. Uh, part four is we get an email where it indicates an, a, a sense of urgency to pay. Uh, part five, unsolicited text asking for payment. And then um, part six is more on a request to move to a new platform to either pay or to communicate. So as I said, uh, we've linked to this in the show notes. I found it to be a really interesting series. And I think that a compliance officer or uh, whoever might be in charge of cyber at your organization should really uh, send these out to, to employees because it, it really provides a, a nice short refresher on red flags around payment. And if you're involved in payments in your organization, it would, uh, I think, do you good to, to just watch those. So uh, kudos to the FBI for producing and putting this out and double kudos to Scott Moritz for bringing it to the attention of our community on LinkedIn. Tricky Dicky makes an appearance in the 2021 FCPA blog. Tell us about it. All right. This comes to us from Dick Casson, the founder of the FCPA blog. And he answers the question is, why FCPA cover-ups are worse than the crime? Every compliance training session should include the following warning. If you ever become involved with, see, or otherwise discover a potential FCPA violation, stop everything. Don't clean your desk, empty the trash can, or even clear your browser history. Prosecutors could view moves like those as an attempt to cover up the bribery or impede an investigation. For emphasis, add this to your warning. Individuals convicted of a criminal FCPA violation face up to five years in prison, but anyone guilty of violating the federal obstruction statute can be jailed for up to 20 years. The short but dangerous law is found at, and um, we have a link here to 18 U.S. Code 1519, which says, Whoever knowingly alters, destroys, mutilates, conceals, covers up, falsifies, or makes a false entry in any record, document, or tangible object with the intent to impede, obstruct, or influence the investigation or proper administration of any matter within the jurisdiction of any department of the United States or any case filed or in relation to or contemplation of any such matters or case shall be fined under the title and imprisoned not more than 20 years. Prosecutors can't throw corporations in jail, but they can punish organizations with huge fines. The DOJ and the SEC's FCPA Resource Guide warns issuers about the obstruction provisions of Sarbanes-Oxley. And by the way, SOX also criminalizes, quote, retaliation against employee whistleblowers under the obstruction of justice statute. And finally, the DOJ's Justice Manual describes corporation corporate obstruction as the opposite of cooperation. So what's the history of obstruction in FCPA cases? It's been a mixed bag for individual defendants. In 2019, the DOJ included an obstruction count against a former Herbalife executive charged with conspiracy to bribe Chinese officials. Prosecutors said Jerry Lee, a Chinese citizen, allegedly lied to the SEC and destroyed evidence. Charges are pending. 
In another case, the DOJ said a French citizen tried to obstruct an ongoing federal grand jury investigation into potential FCPA and money laundering offenses. Frederick Sillins pleaded guilty in 2014 to obstruction and was sentenced to two years in prison. Another early FCPA prosecution included the obstruction count. The defendant was a Hollywood movie producer, Joe Green. The DOJ said Green bribed an official in Thailand and later cooked his company's books, disguised the bribes as, bribes as bona fide film production expenses. The jury convicted Green of 17 FCPA money laundering counts, but acquitted him on the single obstruction account. Green, who died in 2015, was 77 when his trial started and in poor health. He served a six-month prison sentence and was released in 2019. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, next we had a, a really interesting article, uh, our second offering today from the FCPA blog uh, by Daniel Shevitz and Sergio Orninger. I'm sure I butchered both of their last names. And they uh, are partners at Morgan Lewis, a uh, uh, white law firm. And they talk about... Uh, Something that, frankly, had not seen uh, discussed really in the uh, by the FCPA commentariat, which is creating a captive law firm for uh, DNO coverage uh, for FCPA work. Uh, for those not familiar with captives, uh, in a prior life I did insurance work, and a captive is where you create your own insurance company uh, for claims against your company. And uh, I'd really not thought about that in the FCPA context, but they give some pretty good details about not only what captives are, but how a company can use a captive insurance company as a tax-efficient tool to protect fully uh, stakeholders uh, from DNO uh, indemnification, uh, securities claims, and non-indemnifiable losses. Uh, it's a little bit into the weeds, but if you're a geek like me, you love going into the weeds on pretty much any legal topic. And uh, once again, this is not something I've really seen talked about in uh, the FCPA arena. Uh, usually it's over on Kevin LaCroix's Dino Diary blog, but uh, check out this piece. And if it makes sense for your company, you might want to talk to these guys uh, because it may give you a cost-effective way uh, to provide the insurance that your board should be demanding, and indeed you should be providing to them if uh, FCPA or really any uh, securities law claim arises, or perhaps even you could expand it out to really any claim against the company that uh, could become cognizant. So uh, kudos to these authors and a really interesting idea for some protection from potential securities law and FCPA exposure. Jay, what do you got next? Uh, we're going to ask a question, do we need to ban high-value currency? And this piece comes to us from Sam, hope I say it okay, Magaram, and the GAB, the Global Anti-Corruption Block. Although the use of cash continues to decline in both the legitimate and illicit economies, lots of criminal transactions, including bribes, still use cash. The anonymity, the untraceability, and the universal exception of greenbacks makes it useful for many types of criminal activity, including not only corruption, but also drug trafficking, human trafficking, and terrorism. Cash is also an indispensable to money laundering because it both obscures the source of funds and enables money to flow undetected across borders. Indeed, a gover as governments and banks increasingly scrutinize electronic transactions, 
parts of the illicit economy will embrace cash all the more. Nobody could seriously argue for eliminating cash entirely, but there's a simple step that monetary authorities can and should take to make cash-based criminal transactions substantially harder without substantially impinging on the legitimate cash-based economy. And this answer could be to eliminate high denomination notes. In contrast to lower denominations, high denomination notes serve few useful purposes in the legitimate economy. While some high denomination notes are held by governments and people without access to the banking system, a significant portion of these notes are used for unlawful activities like paying bribes, laundering money, and evading taxes. <clears throat> Indeed, British law enforcement estimated that in 2010, 90% of the 500 euro notes in the UK were held by organized crime and the economist Kenneth Rogoff estimates that over 75% of $100 bills held in the U.S. are used for illicit purposes. Given that there are 1.08 trillion in hundreds currently circulating, approximately $300 bills for every man, woman, and child in the U.S., and that typical American adult carries only about $60 in his or her pocket, it's almost certain that a substantial portion of those hundreds are in the hands of criminals. Why are higher denomination notes so popular, especially with criminals? The reason is simple. Cash is bulky and a large quantity of notes tends to be heavy and conspicuous. For most legitimate everyday transactions, the difference in size and weight between lower denomination notes and higher denomination notes is trivial. 520s don't weigh much more than a single $100 bill and aren't much harder to fit in a wallet. But criminals who engage in much larger trash cash transactions where the size and the weight difference can be substantial. $1 million in $100 bills weighs just 22 pounds, and it fits in a briefcase. A $1 million in 20s would weigh over 100 pounds and require a duffel bag. Forcing launders, launderers and smugglers to use lower denomination bills would either cause them to increase the total number of cash shipments or make existing shipments more conspicuous. <coughs> Not only would eliminating high denomination notes make laundering bribes more difficult, it would make the actual payment and storage of bribes riskier. And even grand corruption, which often involves wire transfers and the like, would also be hampered by eliminating high denomination notes because corrupt officials often rely on cash. Monetary authorities around the world could make it considerably more difficult to pay and accept bribes, launder money, evade taxes, and engage in a host of other criminal conduct by simply printing smaller notes. Any resulting inconvenience to the legitimate activity would likely be small and would be well worth the trouble. While unilateral action by national monetary authorities to continue to discontinue these and other high denomination notes would be helpful, coordinated action would be preferable. After all, cash is fungible. While eliminating any one high denomination note would be an improvement, some criminal activity would likely shift to another. The good news is that relatively few countries issue problematically large notes. In fact, unified action by the G20 would include nearly all high denomination notes, and there's a good chance that the remaining few issuers could be persuaded to join as well. We'll be right back after this message.
Well, Jay, you're a Hollywood kind of guy. Is that going to really crimp your style when you're, you know, out kind of whining and dining the crew? Well, I think it's more like lighting up my cigars, and I would rather use ones than hundreds anytime. No, that's that's a valid point, Jay. Well, well, point well taken. Uh, Jay, next we have a really interesting article and first-time contributor to this week in FCPA, and that's Stephen Naughton. Stephen is the faculty advisor at, uh, or rather for, the Journal of Regulatory Compliance at Loyola University. And he published an article entitled Compliance Opportunities in and After the Time of COVID-19. And then as I went to do some uh, research and, and put the links in, it turns out there is an entire law review article uh, uh, related to uh, compliance topics, probably not surprising given the name, the Journal of Regulatory Compliance. So the spring 2021 edition has, in addition to Stephen's article, conducting internal investigations and responding to government inquiries, considerations in the age of remote workforces, and understanding ethics and compliance, a practitioner's guide to cor effective corporate compliance programs. It also has two additional articles, Work in the Time of COVID-19, Polarities, Variants, and Mutations of Employment Law, and A Better Guide to Prescribing, Particularly During Public Health Emergencies, Legislation and Policy Governing, Prescribing to Self and Family. So I was uh, thrilled to find this journal, uh, Jay. I'm a little sheepishly sheepish to admit I had not uh, was not on my radar before, and here's the best part, Jay. All of the articles I've just detailed are available at no charge. So uh, if you like law review articles, if you're a lawyer, or perhaps if you're not, and uh, you still enjoy them or want to get into them, I'd suggest taking a look at uh, this issue. We've linked to the entire journal in the show notes, including Stephen's article. So uh, I just want to say uh, kudos to the executive editors, senior editors, associate editors at the Journal of Regulatory Compliance at Loyola University of uh, Chicago. Jay, what do you have for us next? Uh, next, we check in with our friends at Corporate Compliance Insights, and we ask, how can FinServe organizations build an effective action plan? This article comes to us from, from Peter Fitzgerald, Scott Zucker, and Tristan Sunis-Wilson. When a financial institution incurs a Bank Secrecy Act or anti-money laundering enforcement, it needs to respond with an action plan detailing how it will resolve its wrongdoing. The document will help to define the relationship between the regulator and the organization, and it may ultimately mark the difference between a slap on the wrist and a significant penalty. In 2020, there were over 12 publicly released enforcement actions delivered against financial institutions by regulatory bodies for BSA and AML-related deficiencies. In sum, they resulted in over $225 million in fines, according to a Deloitte analysis of publicly issued enforcement actions. Regardless of the regulator or type of action, all enforcement actions require management to provide a written response in the form of a proposed action plan. A well-crafted comprehensive action plan that is addressed in a timely manner is a critical step a financial institution can take 
to remediate noted concerns and have an enforcement action lifted. Here are four main strategies for creating an effective response. First, be specific. A crucial step in creating an effective action plan being specific will decrease ambiguity and reduce the number of follow-up inquiries and level of scrutiny from regulators. Further, financial institutions should create and submit action steps that are comprehensive and have associated milestones and or timelines that do not overpromise and carry reasonable due dates. It is typically more effective to communicate upfront why a certain course of action will take time to fully implement and complete than it is to explain later why actions were overpromised and underdelivered. Number two, be deliberate. When financial institutions are deliberate and their with their remediation plans, they can often save time, money, and resources needed to address the action. All action items should be designed to address or be directly tied to the requirements set forth in the enforcement action. Items unrelated to the enforcement action should generally not be included. Number three, be consistent. Financial institutions action plan should address the design and operating effectiveness of steps taken while also remaining consistent with standard internal governance protocols. When financial institutions can demonstrate that they are addressing an action plan in a timely fashion and with active management involvement, they may build, build, build sorry, goodwill within regulators. And lastly, be realistic. Addressing an enforcement action by crafting an action plan is a significant undertaking as effort typically affects many aspects. AML compliance programs and needs to reach all appropriate operations, be they regional, multinational, or fully global. No matter how realistic an action plan is about what can be accomplished and how quickly it can be done, it's important to allow for the flexibility needed to tackle unexpected challenges as they arise. Tom? Jay, we had a SEC enforcement action, ironically enough, on a World Whistleblower Day, and that involves uh, what, what Matt Cully called one of the great unforced errors of compliance, and that's having a pre-taliation clause in your employment manual. What is a pre-taliation clause, you ask? I'm glad you asked. It's a clause which prevents an employee from going to regulators when they observed illegal conduct. Uh, and a company called Guggenheim Securities had just that. What makes this one of the great unforced errors is that since at least 2016, this has been illegal. And the first enforcement action was against KBR, uh, very well known in the compliance community. How do you not have an enforcement action for retaliation? Pretty simple. Don't have that illegal language in any employment agreement or your employment manual. Yet, uh, Guggenheim Securities uh, actually went the other way. So, um, it's just stunning to me, Jay, that here five years later, after there was a clear articulation of the law by the SEC, and even in the KBR, uh, enforcement action. They put the language in that they wanted to see, and it's not onerous. It says, you know, confidential information shall remain confidential. You can't uh, release it to uh, anyone outside the appropriate uh, legal department or other authorities in your company, um, but that doesn't prevent you from going to a regulator for illegal conduct. 
or good faith belief in illegal conduct. Yet here we have Guggenheim's um, <clears throat> securities being slapped to the tune of some nearly uh, $300,000 or $229,000, I think, uh, for failing to follow the law that's been in place for five years. Um, don't make unforced errors. You look stupid. And as we now know, it can cost you money. Jay, yeah, what's our last story today? Uh, as you spoke about a few minutes earlier, the realm of DNO, we've got something from the DNO diary written by Kevin LaCroix. And he asked, will laws requiring board diversity survive court scrutiny? Last summer, when California adopted a new law requiring corporations based in the state to add board members from underrepresented communities, it modeled the statute on the board gender diversity statute that the state has enacted two years before. The constitutionality of this law has been challenged in a federal court lawsuit, but the court hearing the suit had dismissed it based on plaintiff's lack of standing. However, a couple days ago in a June 21st opinion, the Ninth Circuit reversed the district court, finding that the claimant had sufficient standing to pursue the claim. Here's a little background. The California legislature enacted Senate Bill 826 in 2018, which required all corporations headquartered in the state to have a minimum, minimum number of females on their board of directors. Corporations that do not comply are subject to monetary penalties. OSI Systems is a Delaware corporation based in California, and it's subject to SB 826. In November of 2019, Creighton Mellon Jr., an OSI Systems shareholder, sued the California Secretary of State, alleging that the bill discriminates on the basis of sex in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and seeks to force shareholders to perpetuate sex-based discrimination. At its December 2019 shareholder meeting, OSI shareholders elected a female to fill a vacant board seat. California then filed a motion to dismiss Milan's complaint for lack of Article III standing. The district court granted the state's motion on the grounds that Mellon had not suffered an injury in fact because the statute imposed requirements and potential penalties on corporations, not individual shareholders. The district court also found that Mellon was free to vote for a male board candidate if he so desired. Finally, the district court found that even if he had established an injury, Mellon's injury was not an actual or imminent because OSI was compliant with the statute. He appealed the district's court's dismissal. In, in a June 21st opinion written by Judge Sandra Sigal Ikuda for a unanimous three-period, three-judge panel, the Ninth Circuit reversed the court's dismissal of Mellon's claim. While the district court found that he was free to vote for male board candidates, the statute, the appellate court said, necessarily requires or encourages individual shareholders to vote for female board members as, quote, failure to vote for a female, unquote, would contribute to the risk of putting the corporation in violation of state law. Here's the discussion. The appellate court's ruling that Milan had standing means only that the lawsuit now goes back to the district court. The appellate court's ruling does not mean his claims are meritorious or that the statute is unconstitutional. But while, ultimate, while the ultimate merits of his claim remain to be determined, the appellate court's ruling is nonetheless significant, both, respect to the, both with respect to the board's gender diversity statute 
and with respect to the state of California's more recently enacted board racial diversity statute. If the California statutes are upheld, other states may enact similar laws. And if the California laws are struck down, state legislators may be constrained from seeking to impose board diversity requirements by statute. The California board diversity statutes are, of course, not the only current board diversity initiatives underway. For example, NASDAQ has proposed board diversity listing requirements requiring all NASDAQ-listed companies to implement diverse board membership. NASDAQ's proposal to the SEC remains pending. The other initiatives and changing social attitudes in general may cause many companies to take steps to adopt greater board diversity, even without the added impact of legal compulsion in the form of state statutory requirements. Nevertheless, California's board diversity statutes are a significant part of the legal environment within the companies and their boards must consider the diversity represented among their board's membership. At a minimum, if the statutes are struck down as unconstitutional, the legal compulsion towards diverse board membership will be diminished. Tom, let's start off on podcasts for this week. Sure, Jay. I had a great week of uh, Microsoft employees on Microsoft Week on Innovation and Compliance. Our good friend Alan Gibson, who we know from the compliance function uh, when he was at in the compliance function at Microsoft, he's moved on to another role now. Talked about legal compliance for the future. Abbas Kudrati on innovation through information security. Joseph Davis on a progressive and humble leadership to cybersecurity. Erica Telly on records management and information governance. And Jesus Fernandez on the digital transformation of compliance. For those historians out there, and particularly those who are interested in uh, ancient Greek and ancient Rome, Richard Lummis and I are doing a 10-part series on Plutarch's lives. In episode one, we looked at the lives of and leadership lessons from Themiscocles and Camillus. In episode two, Salon and Popsicola. And in this week, uh, posting on episode three, one of my personal heroes, Pericles and Fabius Maximus. If you've ever wondered where the Fabian strategy came from, Fabius Maximus is your man. On trekking through compliance, uh, this week we had Space Seed, uh, the great precursor to Star Trek II, uh, Return of the Archons, This Side of Paradise, Devil in the Dark, and Aaron of Mercy. Jay, you want to tell us about some of the uh, upcoming events? Yeah, I've got some names I can butcher. <clears throat> On July 1st, join K2 Integrities, Snezana Gebauer and Darren Matthews as they present a webinar on asset tracing at the IBA Global Influencer Forum. And we have a link to sign up and with more information on the show notes. Then a couple weeks later on July 13th, please join K2 Integrity for its virtual compliance conference on ESG compliance risks for financial institutions. And then finally, um, Compliance Week is looking at their third risk management in 2021 and a two-day virtual event on June 29th and 30th. And we have a link to click through. And Tom, what's the update on the book? Jay, we're literally days away from uh, the release by LexisNexis. So perhaps next week for our 4th of July edition, we can have a special announcement about that. Great. Well, as always, Tom Fox is the voice of compliance. He can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw. And I, Jay Rosen, am Mr. Monitor, and you can reach me at 
the initial J R O S E N at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom and myself, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 258 for the week ending June 25th, 2021, the design thinking and compliance edition. We expect, we thank you for spending part of your week or weekend with us. And we look forward to talking to you next week when we'll take a look at this week and FCPA. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Jay and I again next week where we take up some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories, talk about upcoming webinars, and review key podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, which premiered for the week. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.